before we begin this morning, um, I have a, a confession that I need to make. I don't know that any of you have, uh, I've told any of you about this before. Probably it's because there's a statute of limitations, and so now I can share this. Um, many of you may not have known this, that Krista and I used to actually be undercover agents, spies, if you will. I mean, many of you probably look at me and maybe would have assumed that, you know, or maybe you would have assumed I was a horse jockey. That's also fair, but I was not a horse jockey. So what happened was when we moved up to Lookout Mountain, now whatever, 22, 23 years ago, uh, there was a, a person that we knew that approached us, and this person had served as an undercover agent and needed to step away from their uh, position, and so they thought that maybe Chris and I would be good candidates to step in and to be spies. And so we considered this person's request, and eventually we felt like, man, this is really our duty, and so we said yes and we became undercover agents. Now, our mission wasn't to infiltrate some extremist group within the United States of America. It wasn't to go abroad somewhere and to do, you know, undercover work. Our job was to be secret shoppers at Longhorn. And so we literally got to go to Longhorn and, uh, and to sort of be undercover agents. So we would have to order appetizers and drinks and entrees and dessert and then afterwards, we'd have to rate our entire experience. It was uh, quite the privilege to be able to do that. It was, it was a very sad day when we had to leave Chattanooga, Tennessee, and, uh, and to pass that torch on to someone else. Now, let me ask a quick question. How many of you guys in this room have ever been to Longhorn? If so, please raise your hand. Some of you know, and if you go to Longhorn, you can get a steak, a baked potato, sweet tea, and a salad, and it's good. Now, it's not on the Mount Rushmore of steakhouses, right? I mean, but it's still pretty good. Now, let me ask another question. How many of you have ever been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? All right, a few more people, okay. Or maybe Howl's down in Atlanta. Have you ever heard of Howl's? It's one of the highly, most highly rated steakhouses down there. Chopped is down in Atlanta as well. Those might be on the Mount Rushmore of steakhouses. Um, the question is, what differentiates Longhorn from Ruth's Chris or Longhorn from one of those other steakhouses? Well, one of the things that differentiates them is price. And so if you go to one of those other steakhouses, it's going to be about three times the cost for that steak and that baked potato and that salad and that sweet tea and that bread. But something differentiates the two experiences. And what I would argue is that what differentiates those two experiences is what we would call values, values or vision and values. So over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of the vision and the values of Seven Hills Fellowship, because what vision and values does is it distinguishes one organization from another, one church from another. I would argue that every organization has either stated or unstated values. And so you can go online very easily, and you can find the vision and values for Chick-fil-A. You can find the vision and values for Home Depot. You can find the vision and values for Coke. Now, I would also argue that even your family, the family you grew up in, had a vision and values. Now, it may not have been a stated vision and values. It may not have been hanging on the wall in your kitchen or in the dining room, but undoubtedly, there was a vision and there were certain values that determined how your family operates. So I could give you a moment and I could give you the chance to think about, well, what were those, what was that vision? What were those values? And you could probably pretty quickly come up with what they were. Now, those, most of you probably had unstated values. I thought about it and I thought about how in my home, the home that I grew up in, there were particular values and the values in my home would have been God slash church. A value would have been a blue-collar work ethic. Another value would have been manners. My dad was in the military, and so there was a lot of yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, introducing yourself in appropriate ways. 
And then I would say probably hiking was another value. These were sort of things that really, if you talked to me about my family of origin growing up, I would explain it this way. And if you talked to somebody else, they would explain it that way. And you'd go, oh, the, the homes you grew up in were different, right? It's good to identify your values, but it's even better when you can implement them with some level of intentionality, if you can be thoughtful about what they are. Values and vision can keep us on target. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the vision statement for Seven Hills Fellowship is that we want to be a church working towards the flourishing of our city, a church working towards the flourishing of our city. That's an outgrowth of what we call the kingdom of God, where we surrender our hearts and our minds and our lives to the Lordship of Christ. When we do that, that flourishing begins within us. It spreads out into our families, into our friend groups, and then ultimately into the communities in which we live. Now, values, again, determine sort of the ways in which someone does something differently or an organization does something differently. Last week, we talked about how one of our values is education for transformation, education for transformation. In other words, we don't want to just fill people up with information that, that doesn't transform them or that they don't use, but that ultimately, when we convey biblical truth to the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, it ought to make us the most humble people in the world because we realize just how much we needed to be saved by Jesus. But it should also fill us with confidence because we realize how much God loved us that He might even send His Son to die on the cross for us. We should be transformed. Now, this morning, we're going to be talking about another value, and uh, I'm going to jump into it in a minute in just a moment. Um, Jeff's already mentioned what it is. It's this idea of accessibility. But before we do, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank You very much for this day. I thank you for these people. I thank you that as Psalm 139 makes clear and Romans 8 makes clear that uh, no one is here this morning by accident. That's an amazing truth. To realize that we are here because you have drawn us into this place, because you have something or maybe someone for us to experience. And so, Father, as we have already said a couple times today, I pray that no one would be able to leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you the living God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when I was in high school, I got a chance to go to Trinidad. Trinidad is off the coast of Venezuela. And when I was there, um, I met a young man who was a couple years older than me, but his name was Danny Kalipersad. And uh, Danny worked at a camp, a Christian camp that I was working at. Several years later, after meeting him after seminary, uh, Danny came to the United States, and uh, he called up Krista and I. We were living in Gainesville, Georgia at the time. I was working as a youth pastor at a church there. And uh, Danny said, hey, is it okay if I come hang out with you for a few days? And I was like, absolutely. And so Danny came and stayed with us for a few days. We you know, took him around. We played some soccer. We ate some food, spent some time together. When Saturday night rolled around, Danny goes, hey, is it okay if I come to church with you guys in the morning? And I was like, of course, we'd love to have you. Now, at the time... I was working at a church that was uh, very white-collar, a lot of um, people that were sort of in that particular demographic, and so the clothing that people wore on Sunday mornings were, you know, men wore suits and women wore these nice dresses, everybody sort of dressed up, and Danny was uh, probably from a much lower socioeconomic class, and all he had was sort of jeans and t-shirts, and so when I said, you can come, I was like, hey, you know what, you're welcome to wear whatever you want, that's fine. I said, but a lot of people will have on suits and dresses. They'll be dressed up nicely. And so if you want to, you can just borrow the suit of mine. And we were about the same size. And so I put it in his room. We hung out that night. We went to bed. And when I got up the next morning and I walked out into the kitchen to get ready to, to leave for that morning, 
there was a note on the table, and Danny had left a note, and he said, hey, thanks so much for letting me come stay with you and Krista. It was good to be with you guys. I really enjoyed our time together. I felt a little funny about not having the right clothes to wear, so I just decided to go ahead and get on the road. And I remember at the time, it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks, and I thought, wow, well, that is, that is such a shame that something like clothing would be a barrier to someone having an encounter with God. That doesn't seem to be good to me. That doesn't seem to be right. And I remember vividly thinking, and this is silly because at the time I was a 25-year-old youth pastor, but I remember thinking something like, if I ever get the chance to sort of establish the values for a church one day, then I want sort of their, one of our values to be this idea of accessibility, that anybody can come, that anybody is welcome, right? And so that stuck out in my mind back then. And it's funny, at 25, I don't think I ever actually expected that I would have the, the chance or the opportunity to determine values for any organization, much less for a church. However, 17 years ago when Krista and I moved here to Rome, Georgia to plant Seven Hills Fellowship, we got to do just that. One of the very first values that was really a, a non-negotiable for me was this idea of accessibility. Now, fundamentally, accessibility means that God invites you to come as you are. Let me say that one more time. God invites you to come as you are. You don't have the right clothing? That should not be a barrier. You don't have a college degree? Shouldn't be a problem. Psychologically, you've got some brokenness? You are welcome here at Seven Hills Fellowship. Spiritually, you're not even sure what you believe, if anything, at all. We're just glad that you are here. Morally, your past looks like an old junkyard with trash and uh, bodies littered all over it. That's not a barrier to God's work in your life. In fact, it's the very reason for God's work in your life. Now, the question this morning that we're going to be looking at is not whether or not accessibility is a good value or a good idea. I think most of us would probably argue that it is. I think the question for us this morning is whether or not it's a biblical value. Let's take a moment and let's see what the Bible has to say about that. My first point this morning is that God welcomes outsiders and God welcomes outcasts, outsiders and outcasts. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, if you've ever had the chance to read through the entire Bible, you'll likely see this theme of outsiders and outcasts popping up over and over again. It happens both in the Old Testament and it also happens in the New Testament. And one of the more jarring outsider stories in the whole Bible is the story of the wise men or the magi, as Matthew calls them. And just to clarify, the text doesn't say that there were three of them, and it doesn't say that they were kings. All we're told is that these travelers were from the east, is how most translations um, will uh, translate it. Literally, the words there in the Greek are from the rising or from the rising of the sun, meaning that they came from modern-day Iran, Iran or maybe Persia. They're referred to, to as magi or magos, a word that can be, can be translated to wise men. These men served as priests, but they were often astrologers, not astronomers, 
but astrologers, they were sorcerers, they were soothsayers throughout the Bible. For a point of reference, you can think about when Moses faced off against Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus chapter 7, when they performed magic tricks that then uh, God, through Moses, did even greater signs. Needless to say, when the Magi's caravan pulled into Jerusalem inquiring about the arrival of the Jewish Messiah, that would have been shocking to Herod, the king of the Jews at the time, and all the religious leaders. They would have been shocked. We then see the Magi leaving Jerusalem, and they finally find the boy Messiah. We read that upon discovering him that they were overjoyed and that they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. That is, these soothsayers, these sorcerers, these astronomers from Persia. No Pharisees had been there yet. No Sadducees joined in in worshiping Jesus. No priests or teachers of the law had yet made a vision. So far, the only worshipers of this newborn Jesus were a band of outcast shepherds and a group of Persian astrologers, outcasts, outsiders. If you're not convinced by this story, then listen to Acts chapter 2, where we read of the birth of the early church. The disciples had gathered together, and they began preaching, and miraculously, when they spoke here in Acts chapter 2, people visiting from all over the Roman world could understand their words in their language. We read in verses 6 through 11 the following, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And listen to this group of uh, people, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of our God in our own tongues. It was amazing. It's called Pentecost. It seems clear to me from this passage, from each of these passages, and from the narrative arc of all of Scripture that God very clearly invites outcasts and outsiders to worship Him. And I think He still does. Maybe some of you today feel like you fit into one of those camps or into one of those categories. If so, I want you to know that you are welcome here. We welcome your questions. We're glad for them. We welcome your doubts. We welcome your messiness. We welcome your rough edges. They're actually a gift to Seven Hills Fellowship. We need more of that around here. Whoever you are and wherever you come from, I believe that God is happy to have you here, and we are too. So accessibility means that God welcomes outcasts and outsiders. What else do we see in the Bible or in Scripture about this idea of accessibility? The next thing we see is this, that God welcomes both the powerless and also the powerful. Let's look at two passages of Scripture. First, in Matthew 19, we read one of the more famous passages from the Bible. It's one of those verses that makes everyone, religious and irreligious people alike, attracted to Jesus. In verse 13, we read that parents began to bring their little children to Jesus so that He could place His hands upon them and then pray for them. But then we read in verse 13 of Matthew 19 that the disciples rebuked these parents. 
Maybe the disciples thought that Jesus was too busy for these little children, or maybe they thought that he wouldn't want to be bothered by these little children. Maybe the disciples thought that access to Jesus should only be granted based upon someone's importance, and little children surely wouldn't have qualified for that. Let's read a short section of that account, beginning in verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Clearly, these little children who had nothing to offer Jesus were precious in his sight. Throughout Scripture, we see God welcoming the powerless. He welcomes a wanderer named Moses. He chooses David, who's the youngest boy in a large family. God chooses Rahab and Ruth in a culture where women were often seen as little more than possessions. In the New Testament, we see Jesus choosing not the powerful, but often the powerless, fishermen, women, and all sorts of people who, by the culture standards, had very little to offer anyone. And so, again, what we see throughout Scripture is that God welcomes, He invites the powerless. But what's interesting is He also invites the powerful. Some of you in this room this morning can remember the story of Daniel. Maybe, maybe you read it when you were a kid. Maybe you've heard it recently. But Daniel and his friends were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, where if you remember, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den only to survive by God's miraculous grace. Similarly, his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, survived the fiery furnace because God entered into that furnace with them. And while those are great stories, Daniel also tells a story about the most powerful person in the world at that time arriving at a place of worshiping God. There's a king named Nebuchadnezzar, and we're introduced to him in this story because he has a dream that he doesn't understand and it greatly troubles him, and so he calls around himself his wise men, or magi, if you will, and none of his wise men can interpret his troubling dream. God, however, enables Daniel to interpret that dream, and Nebuchadnezzar responds by honoring Daniel's God. We read in verse 46, beginning in verse 46 of Daniel chapter 2, the following, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So while Nebuchadnezzar's response is encouraging, it hasn't yet reached the point of worship. Later in the account, Nebuchadnezzar becomes arrogant, and he takes credit for the kingdom of Babylon and its success. He basically is walking around on the roof of his palace, and he looks out and he says, look at all this that I've done. And at just that moment, God punished him. Nebuchadnezzar fell into a state of mental instability for about a year until God ultimately restores him. Let's listen to a little bit of this account from Daniel 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We see now that God's work in Nebuchadnezzar's life 
has become complete. His honor of God in chapter 2 has now become true worship. Some of you in this room this morning are powerful. Um, You may know that. You might run a business. You oversee an organization. You have wealth. You have influence. Still others of you are thought leaders. People look to you for what to do and say and think in complicated times. And still others of you know very well that you're not powerful. Instead, you fit into the other category of being powerless. Your calling in life might seem insignificant to you. You don't run a business. You don't run a big organization. Maybe you feel like you can just barely run your own life. Not only that, but you're not a thought leader. In fact, you're not even sure what you think most of the time. You may be small in the eyes of the world, and while the world may not esteem you, God does. God welcomes both the powerless and the powerful, and here at Seven Hills Fellowship, so do we. So, accessibility means that God welcomes outcasts and outsiders. It would seem from these passages that we read that God also welcomes both the powerless and the powerful. And finally, this idea of accessibility means that God welcomes sinners. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read a long passage of Scripture, but it's, it's a good story, so I included all of it. Beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which might be a euphemism there, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Jesus begins by telling a story. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Great story. If you've ever read just a little bit of the Bible, you'll realize fairly quickly that God welcomes and invites sinners into a relationship with him. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned by rebelling against God, God pursues them. Not long later, Noah was chosen by God. He was a faithful man, but He did have issues with drunkenness, as you would see. 
God called Abraham, but his track record with honesty and fidelity were somewhat suspect. Isaac had his fair share of failures as a father, namely that he favored Esau over Jacob, and his favoritism created inevitable family chaos. And then there's David and Elijah, whose sins were also substantial. We could go through the entire Old Testament, but you get the point. God continually invites sinners into a relationship with Him. And then we see that same pattern in the New Testament. Even in the broader secular West, people are still attracted to Jesus because Jesus very clearly loves broken people. He recruited Peter and continued to love and use him despite Peter's very public failures. Jesus recruited Thomas and Matthew, one a skeptic and the other a traitor to his own people. In Luke chapter 15, we read an account where Pharisees and religious leaders, their biggest complaint against Jesus was his relationship with sinners. In verses 1 and 2, we read the following, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we want to follow Jesus' example of welcoming broken people. In the words of Tim Keller, the church is not a museum for pristine saints, but a hospital ward for broken sinners. Let me read that one more time. The church is not a museum for pristine saints, but a hospital ward for broken sinners. That should be good news for all of us, because all of us are sinful and broken people. We are all that God has to work with. Of course, there's so much more that we could say here. There are many, many other passages of Scripture that we could point to, but this idea of accessibility is good news for each of us.